0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Scots Weehey. And uh, we're at Glasgow University today, and we're joined by James Robertson. James, thanks for coming and doing this.
1: Pleasure.
0: Um, you've just. We've done a reading, Robert Louis Stevenson short story, which people can hear at a later date. I'd like to talk briefly about um, other um, writers that I think have probably influenced you, and one which I know must have was Walter Scott. Now I'm a big Scott fan. Some people not so much. They see him. Uh, well, I mean, why do you think perhaps his his popularity is going to wane over the years?
1: Uh, oh God! There's so many reasons why Scott is not as popular as he once was because yeah. he was once extremely popular. Yeah. I mean, massively popular. I think people don't realise that. No, I think they don't. But he—he he was, you know, a, a, the, the the you know the, the one of the most popular writers that there has ever been. And certainly mm-hmm. in the nineteenth century, his sales outstripped virtually everybody else. I think he fell into disfavour uh, for a number of reasons. Um, to me the the, the the period when he really falls out of favor is is um immediately after the First World War. Um he the the values that you see espoused in his work, the 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 romanticism, the the the, the sort of um heroism that he describes uh, that that often has a kind of military um sort yeah. of background and so on. I think people felt that Rather jaundiced after the First World War and the and the appalling devastation um, yeah. that, that that war represented, and I think they thought no, the sort of stuff that Scott is writing about in his historical novels is is not for us anymore, and they reacted against it. Right. Within Scotland, he was he fell out of favour because he was seen as part of the the, the the Tory establishment. He didn't seem to be, and I think wrongly, didn't seem to represent the the, the common man yeah. or the common woman. Um, I think that's actually a false um, mm-hmm. uh, image of Scotland. And he was also blamed for the kind of balmoralization of Scottish yes, culture. Indeed. You know the. The, the, the tartanizing of it. and Again, I think that's actually unfair because an awful lot of that had been put in place um, in a previous generation before Scott through the Aust- the, the fascination with Ossian and, and yeah. so on. So I think Scott has been wrongly blamed for a lot of things and that's one of the... And, but he's fallen out of favour. However, I do believe that he may well be coming back into favour mm-hmm. um, because people are beginning to realise that he had an awful lot to say both about Scotland and from Scotland to the rest of the world and that an awful lot of what he said was, was important and, yeah.
0: and valid and still valid. I think for, for one man he gets an awful lot of grief you know, he gets blamed for all of these sins. Why well, could he have the time to write any books if he was going around? Uh, absolutely
1: no. I mean, he he certainly packed an awful lot into a, a relatively yes. short life. Um You know, he was only sixty-one when he died, and he had done so much in that time. Quite apart from all the books that he wrote and how he managed to do that, mm-hmm. and hold down a full-time job in the in the law, and do all the other things that he did is and quite astonishing. So Collect incredible oh, amounts of stuff. Just just an amazing person. Yeah. And what I that's one of the reasons I got into him. I did a PhD on Scott uh, um, through, actually, uh, 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 through uh, the history department at Edinburgh University when I was a student um, but, I, but I got into Scott through history and I was interested in the way that he looks at history and the way that he interprets history through mm-hmm. his fiction and that, that I think is fascinating and um, but I also then became rather fond of him as a man yeah. um, and I began to see the the path of his life is you know is it's like you know this rocket shooting up into yeah. the stars and then of course it reaches um, the apex of its flight and it begins to come back down again and and the last few years of his life are quite tragic and, and mm. I, I'm fascinated by that and interested by him as a person
0: you see parallels with Burns? i just suddenly struck me that Bun's life as well was was followed a kind of similar Career? Absolutely, yeah.
1: I mean, Burns never had the kind of wealth and success no, no, no. in his lifetime. I mean, he did have success, but not quite at the level that Scott had. Nevertheless, there are parallels, and yeah. I think Scott recognised that as well. And he he had a close affinity. He felt a close affinity to Burns, you know, whom he, he met when he was a, a young lad. He met him briefly once, um, uh, um, and and was most impressed by Burns yeah. as 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 a as a man and as a poet. Um, yeah, I think they, he definitely felt that they had something in common.
0: I think Scott's one of these writers that people almost have an opinion on him when they haven't actually read anything by him. And I think another one is uh, Hugh McDermott. And I f- realised that you were the writer in residence uh, from Hugh McDermott's estate, uh, is that in right? In his
1: cottage in, 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 uh, in, uh, just outside of bigger mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was kind of weird as well, because you know, McDermott probably, again, you know, uh, was the person, the writer who Changed. Chat first of all, challenged, and then changed virtually everything I thought about literature, politics, Scotland, language—you name it. I I started reading McDermott when I was twenty, and just thought, this I you know he had he had just died, and yeah. I just he opened up all these doors to me, and so it was quite ironic that sort of a dozen years later I ended up being the first writing right. residence in his restored cottage and sleeping in his bed and all the rest of it and and that was a, a, a strange path for me to go on but it was it felt right and I felt incredibly privileged to end up living in his house for two years
0: and was it the language uh, or the attitude or or you know the subject matter or was everything about that he wrote about that that changed you and what really was the
1: I think it—it it probably the language was the thing that first made me go, sit up and take notice yeah. because he did something so remarkable with Scots. Um, he he revolutionised it in terms of the way it was as a literary language. And, um, and to be honest, again, you know, that was something that was relatively... I knew, I knew Robert Burns, mm-hmm. some of Burns's poetry. I knew very little about Scottish literature other than that. Yeah. And suddenly, I was reading these beautiful lyrics that McDermott had wrote, and then went on to, and had written, and then went on to the longer poems, like a drunk man looks at the yeah. thistle, and so on. And just thought, this guy is talking about these huge, big philosophical ideas, scientific ideas, ideas about history, about politics, and he's doing it in the, the Scots language. And he is raising the language up to be able to cope with these ideas. And I just thought that was astonishing and remarkable. And then, you know, you read all his other stuff, his prose and his polemic yeah. and so on, and some of it is so stirring. I mean, I don't think he was right about everything. No, I no, like no. German.
0: I don't think even he think he was no. right about
1: everything. Uh, he, he didn't. I think he thought, I, I am just here to, to provoke. You know, mm. what was that famous phrase he says? I'm the I'm the catfish that uh, vitalizes the other torpid denizens of the aquarium. <laughs> um, That's what he his, he thought his job was, and he absolutely succeeded. Uh, so he, I
0: both Scott and McDermott are kind of epic in their scale but what, what they try to set out to achieve is something which I think it's very, without wanting to get into stereotypes, very kind of non-Scott Stephen approach doing that in a scale. Um, it, it, you know, if you're looking at the stereotypes that seems to be the way.
1: Well that's interesting and of course McDermott was, was incredibly critical of Scott mm-hmm. uh, and, and of the Waverley novels and yes. said that they were kind of the source of the paralyzing defeatism of Scotland and, and the mm-hmm. poor state of 19th century Scottish culture. And yet I think you're right that they they had more in common with each other than perhaps McDermott allowed. They both had a project and the project was to represent or re-present mm-hmm. Scotland uh, on the world stage. Scott did it for the 19th century, McDermott did it for the 20th century. Now what they wanted to Show Scotland as is was very different in many ways, but actually, I think we've now reached a stage where you can actually, um, you can have both Scott and, and McDermott as keys to open the door onto so. onto Scotland and f- go from Scotland out right to the world. And there was a time when that was very difficult to actually yeah. hold both of them in the same hand, as it were. But now I think we can
0: do that. You had to be one team or the other, yeah. How did you discover McDermott? The fact, because I discovered when I went to university and you know it was taught to them and kind of. Um, but
1: it seems like um, you... how did I discover him? I discovered him because he died. Um, <laughs> I was I was uh, I was a student and I was about to go off. In fact, I had just gone off to America uh, as a as, as an exchange student. First time I'd ever been out of the British Isles, and I think pretty much on the on, on while I was flying across to America, McDermott died and there were obituaries in in the papers and I thought, wait a minute, I don't even know who this guy is. Mm -hmm. And he's died and clearly he's regarded as an important cultural figure in my own country. And I think this coincided with me stepping outside of Scotland for the first time. And I think when you do that, you start seeing your own place in a different way. You know, it gives you a different perspective. So I think those two things combined to make me think, I need to find out more about this character. Mm -hmm. So when I came back, I got his at The uh, the vast sum of 30 quid or something, I bought the two volumes of his complete poems, which had come out posthumously, right. and from there, that was the start of a long yeah. journey for me, which is to be honest, has never ended and is still going on.
0: And the, the key one of the key things, anyway, for uh McDermott was the use of language. And now, you're involved with Ichiku, can you say something about Ichiku because it's a fascinating project?
1: Yeah, Ichiku is a project that has now been running uh, for tw- 13, 12, 12 years. Okay. Um, and it was established um, by myself and another writer, Matthew Fitt, yeah. and uh, uh, another um, uh, Scots language activist called Susan Rennie. She was initially in the project, but dropped out and um, uh, after a wee while. But we basically, we went into partnership with a small publisher called Black and White Publishing based in Edinburgh. And our project aim was to produce books in Scots at every stage of a child's education, going Mm -hmm. through primary school right up through secondary school because we felt that the Scots language had been poorly served by the education system. In fact, it hadn't been served at all in most schools. It had been completely neglected or deliberately um, uh, beaten out of people uh, physically that had only ceased a few years earlier. Um, But it had been deliberately excluded from people's education and we thought, how can you possibly get a sense of... The, the place you come from and the language that is all around you if you don't get any access to it um, through your education. So we started producing books in Scots, starting with picture books for very young bairns um, and going right up to, to more challenging texts for um, um, secondary school pupils. And that was... T- t- 2002 we started that, but we backed the publication of these books, of which I think there's now been nearly 40, And right. um, but we backed that up um, with a very intensive programme of, of teacher training and going into schools and showing teachers how to use these texts and, and, and engage the children with, with the texts. The response from the Bairns in particular was fantastic. We mm. kind of knew it would be, but yeah. we hadn't quite anticipated how. Enthusiastic they would be, and um, so the books have, by and large, been incredibly successful, and um, and I think that. I don't think it was unique. I don't think itchicunisly did this uh, on its own, but I think we came in and did this at the right moment, and there was a kind of revolution in thinking going on about Scots language, and certainly at primary school level, Mm -hmm. it's been embraced. And there are very few schools, primary schools in Scotland now, where they don't actually try to get to grips, at some level at least, with Scots language. Um, I think there's an awful long way to go, and masses more that needs to be done, but we have begun to make some inroads. Oh, look at this
0: Scottish aspect to the... Curriculum as well yeah. now, which has come through, which I think must in some way be related at least to the, the greater awareness that this was something that was needed.
1: I think I think that's that's right. The, the, the awareness, uh, you know, at a political level, uh, at senior educational level, uh, I think it's always been there at some level, uh, yeah. at community level, but uh, but I think it hadn't been articulated properly. And suddenly, um, um, the, the 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 need for Scottish culture to be respected uh, and 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 addressed within education, I think has, has become much more um, apparent.
0: Well, your own uh, one of your own books is on the uh, curriculum. It's all,
1: It's that th- yes, well, my novel, The Testament of Gideon Mack, has been chosen to be studied at um, uh, at the National Five level, um, along with Kidnapped by Robert Louis yeah. Stevenson. That's another um, text that has been selected as yeah. one of the new Scottish texts. And there's a whole range of other texts as well. And uh, and that's obviously I'm very pleased as far as that's concerned um, that they've chosen one of my books, um, but I think it's also uh, a sign that um, that people recognise that you know a child should not really be able to go through their entire education uh, in Scotland never having been exposed to any Scottish literature at all. Now that didn't happen a lot no. in schools. Most most children did get some kind of ac- mm-hmm. um, Scottish literature at some level in their education, but there was no requirement for them no. to have mm-hmm. that and I think it's a good thing that, 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 that everybody is now obliged to look at at least some aspect of Scottish literature.
0: It's a terrific thing. I had one teacher at school who was um fantastic at promoting Scottish literature. And that year we had Sunset Song, we had Achievia Stack Black Black Oil, we had Buns and uh, and she took us actually I remember she took us to a reading uh at Carl McDougall's given an he had This man reading poetry in, in a language which I understood and I'd heard every day and, and that was kind of groundbreaking for me because it just hadn't happened before. Uh,
1: that That's one of the things that people, writers say this, but I think it's not just, you know, people who mm. want to be writers say this, you know, they, they suddenly, be, it's like they're suddenly legitimised in their, exactly. their aims and aspirations, but it's not just writers that benefit from this, you know. Um, School students who, who just suddenly get told, you know, get a writer comes into the class or they read something which as you say is in their own language or in, or, in, or, in, or in, it's in their own idiom mm-hmm. and they suddenly go, it gives them legitimacy as well, it, may, it actually
0: places value on their lives exactly. and so on and that's why it's important. And I think if you're doing that from a primary school age then you don't have that problem. Some people say, "Well, that's absolutely fine."
1: Well, yeah, I why would you have
0: less of a problem? Than I,
1: I think, I think it. You know, we have, we still do have, I think, big issues about about. Um, you know how we value language, how we value Scottish literature as opposed to other literature and Mm. and I I don't want to get into a place where it's a flag-waving exercise. I mean I I really genuinely believe that we should be exposing our children to as much culture, world culture as possible but this is a way of doing that. You know you certainly shouldn't do that and exclude your own culture. You should actually build Um, build an appreciation of the widest possible culture but from from a a, a home base as it were that seems to me to
0: be the natural way of doing things Absolutely, because when it's from a home base it's inclusive, you think well this is my culture and now look at all these other ones, Mm -hmm. if you go look at all these other ones but I don't really have a culture then it's well that is
1: exactly what you end up, What basically what you end up then t- t- saying to children is you do not have a culture of your own. If you want culture you have to go to France or England mm. or America and I think that is completely unacceptable and also it's completely untrue. Scotland yeah, does have course. a massively rich literary culture, musical culture, uh, a culture of, 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 of art and architecture. It's all, it's all here yeah. but very often we're kept in ignorance of it. But I, I'm happy to say that that is changing now.
0: I think it is as well. Well, let's talk about your own novels, starting with the fanatic, the, the first one. So, what was the inspiration behind uh, writing the fanatic?
1: Well, uh, I suppose one would have to say I would have to say that, that part of the, the inspiration for the fanatic came from writers like Scott and Stevenson and James Hogg. Mm. Uh, uh, it's it's half a historical novel and yeah. half set in the 1990s. Um, there are two stories going on that are 300 years apart but they take place most of those most of the the, um, events of those stories takes place within a very small area in the middle of Edinburgh so they're 300 years apart but about 300 yards apart (laughs) and I was interested in that interplay between past and present and we all know or think we know that the past influences the present but does the present influence the past Mm -hmm. and I think that it does because every time you look at history it's changed you look at it from a different perspective so I was interested in that interaction between the characters from the 17th century story and those from the 20th century and how they might overlap interact and and, and, and what, what what the sort of links might be between them mean
0: history seems very important in, in all your novels some more recent history than others but uh, it does I mean and, and now that I, you, you were saying you did your PhD in history that makes a lot of sense yeah because you' always kind of drawn back to these stories
1: I am interested in history, I mean you know yes I did I did my degrees in history and, and and so I am interested in history I have to say I'm not really interested in history for the sake of history. Mm-hmm. what interests me about history is where it still has an impact or uh, or an influence upon so us what,
0: today what it can teach us I yeah know.
1: i mean I, i'm not i have to say not particularly interested in reading um about um i don't know the the, the 15th century um just to find out what they wore in the 15th yeah. century uh, but i am interested if there are political or social or economic lessons to be taken from that and apply and that you can apply to the present day um so but but history and also I think history is a very fluid thing. People yeah. tend to think that history is something fixed, and yep. it isn't it's absolutely not it's fluid, and so um I'm interested in the relationship between the past and I'm interested in time mm-hmm. and the way that the past becomes the present and then the present you know becomes the past um you know some of my novels are set in the in the in the seventeenth century or the eighteenth century, but some are set in the twentieth century yeah. and for, for younger readers will read exactly. like historical novels exactly. even though they've happened in my own lifetime yes.
0: um, I think that's right uh, you know we'll talk about the professor of truth um, later on but that's something that you realize um, that for some people they'll, they'll know it but it, you know they'll know the story of, of uh, Lockerbie which is obviously it's based around but they will not really know any of the details where for someone who lived through it. You know, it was a, I think I called it myself, a JFK moment. You think you know mm-hmm. where you were when that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, Joseph Knight, which was the, the novel that followed The Fanatic, again, historical novel. And it interests me do you think, from what you were saying, that the historical novel is a way of doing just what you say, of kind of teaching people the, 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 that these things happened in the past, but we should still take notice of them today?
1: Yeah, I do, although again I have to be slightly careful because I, I don't actually like the idea of the novel being a sort of didactic instrument that it's about teaching. Yeah, you know, sure, sure. Uh, but, yes. but, 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 but. but nevertheless I think I think it is true. I mean what got me switched onto that story was was that as somebody who had studied history and studied um the Scottish Enlightenment and eighteenth century mm-hmm. Scotland um I I had never heard of Joseph Knight, mm-hmm. uh, the the slave who is brought to Scotland from Jamaica in the in the seventeen sixties, seventeen seventies, and then fights for his freedom through the Scottish law courts, and yet that was a big story in its day. And and somebody pointed out the bones of the story to me and, and said, That's an idea for a novel, and I went, How come I don't know about this? Yeah. And so and then of course I was thinking it, there is a connection and a relationship between that story and the, and the Scotland in the twenty first century because we are um, now, um, like or not, we are becoming a multicultural, mm-hmm. multiracial society. We need to work out, find ways of doing that that makes it work and function. And then you go back to the story of Joseph Knight and you realise that actually that was going on then too. That the people, these same ideas about about how you. Um, integrate people come from different places how you do that what's the relationship between uh, scotland and the rest of the world Yep. what is the what is the economic relationship i mean i mean i mean the, the big story then was slavery um, um but today you could argue that a similar related story is about i don't know um exploitation of cheap third world mm-hmm. labor um, so there, there are compromises. sorry there are parallels and comparisons that can be made um, between then and now.
0: I think what's interesting is twice, you know, you said about Macdermud and then about the story of Joseph Knight, I wasn't aware that that existed and it was the same for me until you have to go on searching for it or be yeah. told it by someone else. And there is that aspect to Scotland's past. You know, you were saying about the fluidity of history. Um, there's no doubt that uh, in terms of perhaps Scotland's role in empire or the history of slavery in relation to Scotland or even um, the, uh, you know, going elsewhere trying to set up, um, you know banks and come as well. we, has been kind of sidelined, we've taught a different history and one which doesn't deal with any of those well,
1: things. Well I think again, I think what's really interesting about, about um, the, the study of Scottish history in the last 20 or 30 years is it's really begun to, to, to look in those nooks and crannies which were previously kind of covered up. Um, um, Joseph Knight uh, was a, um, a well known figure um, to historians of slavery. Yeah. but not to the historians of Scotland yes. and, uh, and so it seemed to me absolutely right to, you know, to try to recreate and retell that story in order to make Joseph Knight a figure from Scottish history and not just a, a, a figure from the history of slavery and abolition. And, uh, and you know, that's now begun to happen. And you see that happening in other ways as well. Like, for example, as you say, the role of the Scots in empire. Mm-hmm. We we were very good, I think, for a long time at considering ourselves to be the victims of history. Absolutely. And then, of course, you realise that we're pretty good at victimising other people yeah, in other
0: yeah. parts of the world. We were often the forward line for when we took uh, over
1: places. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, again, you know, the, the, the study of Scottish military history is really important. Mm. You know, the role that the military has played in Scotland, um, both... Pre and post union, or post the forty-five, yeah. um, so all of these things I think are beginning to be looked at now, and we are beginning to look at them in a in a more open and open-minded way than perhaps
0: was the case in the past. You know, Joseph Knight's one of my father's favourite books, and he uh, he is uh, in his seventies and had you know kind of really knocked back that he'd never heard about this mm. captain Howden you know, so much so that he actually went and gave a, a talk based on it to his old college. Um, to let them you know you should know about this and mm-hmm. but what he wanted to ask you was uh, the balance between when you're writing something which is rooted in historic history how do you you know balance that out with fiction
1: well that's a good question and i mean i suppose i could have when i started researching joseph now I, I could have said this is such a brilliant story because it is an amazing story mm-hmm. uh, i mean i'm not talking about my my rendition yes, i'm yeah, talking yeah. about the, the basic real true story I could have said, well, I'm just going to write, uh, 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 write this as, as, as a work of history and, and tell the story of, of, the, of, the, of what happened. The trouble is the historical record is incomplete and we right. don't know exactly what yeah. happened in, in all aspects of it. We don't know, for example, what happened to the real Joseph Knight after the, his success at the court of session in winning his freedom. He right. just disappears from history. And so I thought it was legitimate and reasonable to use... Yeah fiction as a tool for exploring what might have happened mm-hmm. and, and and you know I, what what's kind of ironic about that is that now people are beginning to who who who've kind of maybe read my novel think that actually what I've done is reproduced <laughs> the, the real events as, as fiction and of course they, they then think that Joseph Knight ends up in real life where he ends up in my novel which yeah. is not the case and we just don't know what happens to him after after the uh, the court case is over
0: um, the next novel the testament of Gideon Mark um, really, you know, looks to the heart of a lot of religion in Scotland and the kind of fanaticism. And for me, um, a, it's, a, it's a fantastic book, uh, and uh, it shows the, the kind of how religion a bit like I'm, I'm going to say Hog because that was the book that reminded me of the Justified Sinner um, that religion can warp not just an individual's. Uh, perception but a nation's perception as well.
1: Yeah, I, I mean James Hogg's J- Justified Sinner, Confessions of a Justified Sinner is absolutely the text that mm. I was
0: that was that was
1: sort of sitting on the on, on the, the, the on of my shoulder <laughs> when when I was writing Gideon Mack. I wanted to do a kind of uh, confessions of a justified sinner for the twenty first century. Yeah. But in my ca- in, in my case, um my my, my uh, hero, Gideon Mack is is a is a man who has lost his religious faith mm-hmm. and then thinks, well, ah, shit, there might be something out there after yeah. all. You know, there might be more than just what's in this world, which in a, in a sense is a sort of reversal of what happens in the in Hog the yeah. book. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, and I had, a, I didn't have a, a, a kind of strict religious upbringing, but mm-hmm. I certainly grew up um, in the kind of Presbyterian tradition. Yeah. And then I lost my faith as a, as a, as a young boy or as a, as a, as a teenager and um and yet that stuff still stays there it, it does, hangs it about and i wanted to explore that and i also wanted to explore when you lose or when a society loses its religion yeah. which i think scotland um to allow, like lots of other western yes, societies really... has in the last couple of generations some part of me applauds that part of me goes yeah. brilliant they don't they don't chain up the straight the swings on a Sunday anymore yes. you know um, <laughs> and 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 and, um, and the the dominance of of certain religious figures is in decline and I think that's a thoroughly good thing but you do also lose stuff. And sometimes you lose good stuff, yeah. And that's the stuff I wanted to explore in in the Testament of Gideon Matt, because Gideon is a you know he's a minister who doesn't believe in God, yeah. Of which there are plenty, by the way, absolutely. And and no harm to them, you know. I've had some fantastic discussions about the book for, with 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 Church of Scotland mm-hmm. ministers who don't who may or may not believe in God or have an ambivalent yes, attitude yeah. towards God, but um, but but you know he at one point laments what has happened to Scottish Sundays. Yes. Now. And like I said, I'm glad that the swings in the play parts aren't chained up anymore. But there was something about a Sunday where not much happened and the shops didn't open exactly. that actually gave everybody a bit of a breather.
0: I think that's very true. And isn't? so,
1: you know, what do you lose that actually you think
0: maybe we shouldn't have lost all of that? When you're forcing people to work, when you mm-hmm. say, well, you know, if you, you can't pay the bills out, so you have to do a double time on a Sunday, mm-hmm. that, you know, the a day for... It, there was a, there's a structure. And often I think it's like anything that we look upon as enlightened it's it's a good thing but there are always things which kind of get left behind in structure and maybe family and, and all of those things all of that stuff there. and I think
1: also and also I think religion certainly the kind of religion that I grew up with um, the, the, the Presbyterian tradition um, what it actually did as well was it invited you to ask questions mm-hmm. and to challenge things now sometimes they didn't like it when you challenged you things it, yeah. but that was what it did uh, the, it, it, the, there was a sort of quite a rigorous sort of intellectual discipline to that kind of religion that actually said okay okay, you know ask why does this happen in the Bible, what does that mean, you know, um, why does God allow these things to happen, all that sort of stuff and and so in a weird kind of way that kind of um, inquisitive um, intellectual religion Carries in it the seeds of its own destruction because yeah. it makes you go. Well, I'm sorry, but I can go so far in my belief, but then I'm sorry, my belief will not allow me yeah. to take. You know, and 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 again, Gideon Mack has all these questions about. Well, that's a pretty rotten joke for God to, to play on <laughs> yeah. human beings if he's if he says you, you can have all your human skepticism, but actually you, you'll pay for it in the end, yeah. kind of thing. So I, I, I'm I'm fascinated by that stuff, and I do think that it's part of the legacy of of of, of our culture, and it's important not to. To throw everything out when you throw out the bad bits.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was an educational value. I think you know, even for folk saying, if you read only one book, you read the Bible, and it's got all these amazing stories in it. And
1: whatever people think of John Knox and and his successes, it was it was absolutely the view of 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 Knox uh, that um, that all children should be educated to a certain they should be taught how to read and write. Um, you know, and at one point. The Scottish peasantry, the Scottish working class, was the best educated in the world. Absolutely. As a result of that, yeah. you might not agree with the way they were, with everything they were taught, <laughs> exactly. but you couldn't deny that they were, they were educated to some extent.
0: I love the idea that the kind of liberalism of the New Testament of Jesus kind of was the seed of, of God's <laughs> downfall. Oh, my boy, what have I done? <laughs> um, well, let's we'll move on to the the Professor of Truth, which is uh, your latest uh, novel, and uh, as I said earlier, it is based on uh, the real life events of Lockerbie, is that a fair way of uh, describing it? Yes. And um, you, know, you said earlier about Joseph Knight, people reading Joseph Knight and thinking that was what happened. Now this is a, this is a tragedy which um, is recent enough for most people to at least remember it or have an opinion on it. What was, what was your concern when you chose that? Well it's,
1: it's, it'll be 25 years this December mm. since Lockerbie happened and um so yeah, I, I you know i'm I'm of an age that I can remember that, but again, I have to say, for anybody under the age of thirty, yeah. or in fact, anybody under the age of about thirty five or even forty Gosh, it is it, 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 it is beginning to be yeah. like history but what what I think is uh, fascinating about that story is that it is still with us. Mm. There, there is unfinished business oh, um because um, the, 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 the There was the bombing and the plane crash, and all those people killed, and that was appalling and awful and, 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 and a, a dreadful, dreadful moment in our history. But then you had this long drawn out saga of of identifying who might have been responsible, mm-hmm. bringing two people to trial who were accused of the crime, one of them gets convicted and and so on. But almost immediately, doubts begin to be raised yeah. as to whether um, the right person has really been banged up for that. Then of course he is released, this is uh, Abdul Bas al he is released um, to go back to Libya um, because he's dying of cancer. There's an, out, an outcry, an outrage about that. Um, and, and then he dies. Meanwhile you have some relatives of the victims still saying he didn't do this. Yes. And, and there's a shadow that hangs over the Scottish justice system. Mm-hmm. Um, as a result of um, some huge doubts about the conduct of the investigation, the conduct of the trial and so on. And I, I am firmly in the camp that believes that McGrahee was was, um, was probably the victim of a miscarriage mm-hmm. of justice. Um, so that was why I felt uh, um, a compulsion to write about the book, sort of to write about uh, something that was based on that story. But I didn't want to simply write about Um, Lockerbie and kind of change names and just sort of um, um, fictionalise it in that sense. What I wanted to do was take some of the core um, themes uh, that that attach to any big story like that, you know, and in this case, uh, the question is, what is truth? Mm. What is justice? What happens to somebody who has to deal with that appalling grief and loss of losing family in such a terrible incident, but then on top of that, Becomes more and more convinced that actually the wrong person has yeah. been found guilty of the crime. Those are the things that I wanted
0: to explore in the novel. The two themes that come up from your justice on in terms of uh, the, a national scale, but grief in terms of an individual scale, and this is and the two become mixed as um, you have a Alan. It is Alan yes, Teeling. Alan Teeling, um trying to come to terms with the death of his daughter and wife by throwing himself into the case, as he calls it, uh, the investigation. Um, how, yeah, how did you put yourself in, or write the character of Al, I mean that seems a very personal, um, yeah. like, not a tragic case, but the, the, the idea of coping with grief is something which is, you know, um, universal and I think it does it beautifully.
1: Well he, he I mean I'm glad to say I've never had to deal with anything remotely uh, as awful as what yeah. my fictional character deals with or, or you know but um, I just felt well I have to you know this is what fiction is about you try to imagine yes. what these things would be like um, but uh, but what I discovered and the other thing about fiction is when you set off to, to, to explore that kind of idea you don't really know where you're going to be led mm-hmm. by by the the exploration that you that you undertake so Alan Teeling as a character kind of you know began to to to. to to grow in a way that I wasn't altogether expecting. I didn't know um, that he actually ends up being in some respects, uh, uh, his, his, he becomes kind of emotionally quite barren because because of what's happened to him, his, the loss of his wife and child. He actually becomes Rather less empathetic to other people's yeah. problems and issues than you might have expected, and he's a teacher of literature, so yes. you would think, you know, here he is, a man whose whose whole business and job is to explore characters and 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 try to teach his students the value of 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 reading mm-hmm. novels and so on, and yet actually he can't apply that or doesn't apply that very well to his own life and his own situation. Um, and then, in the course of the novel, he he meets people who sort of oblige him to revise his his um, revise his relationship with the rest of the world, I suppose.
0: Yeah. He knows that truth is uh, subjective, but he's looking for an an objective one that will give him whatever he's looking for.
1: and And the lesson that he has to learn, I suppose, is that you can actually still reach for the truth, knowing that it won't be the pure unblemished thing you you hope it might be yeah. but nevertheless it's still worth reaching for it and even if you don't, if it doesn't end up looking quite how you wanted it to look like, it's still worth going for and that in itself may actually enable you to to recover some, uh, you know, a, a better way of living mm-hmm. um, and, and to reconnect with people that you felt you didn't have any connection with.
0: Um, how did you, you must have known writing about something that was for some people still a very um, emotional event that, there, you know, there would be people again prejudging it. What, did you have a problem? Worry about that or did you? Y-
1: yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, next I mean, question. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you know, it's inevitable. You know, this is, like I said, this is not, this is unfinished business. Yes. And, 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 and also, you know, people have lost their loved ones in sure. the most appalling circumstances. So, of course, it's raw and and it, and, it, and it's and it's never going to go away. this is not, never going to be over for, no, for, for somebody who's course. been through that, so yes, I was aware that I was treading in sensitive territory yes um but I don't think that art i ha- i think I think when you, you know art as a whole literature specifically must be bold enough to yeah. go into those places, and then you take the consequences yeah. and and if you go into those places to explore that stuff um with a genuine uh, desire to, to 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 investigate and not not to be exploitative, no. but to, to actually you know to try and think, well, yeah. what is the human cost of all of this stuff and look at it in those senses? Then I think that's a legitimate thing to do. And as I said, if some people don't like it, well, I'm, that's that's a shame, yes, and I yeah. don't like it. But you have to. I, then, then I you know I'm quite happy to prepare to defend what I've done on yeah. that basis. And so far, I mean, there have been one or two. Um, caustic remarks, but mm-hmm. mostly by people who, once again, haven't read the book. I haven't read the book. Um, and so, what I, the first thing I would say to anybody who does say you shouldn't be doing this, you shouldn't be writing about this—is read the book and then come back and tell me I shouldn't be doing it. Yeah, I think that's the. There are
0: certain things which people seem to say. Well, that is not appropriate to be looked at. And yeah. like you say, well, it's all appropriate to be looked at. It depends on how you yeah. manage to do it. And I think you know, Professor Tough Truth does that uh, fantastically well. Um I'd like to say this was deliberate, but I have skipped over Andalandley still. But it's a good thing because I think Andalandley still is for me is the best book written in Scotland in the last ten, fifteen years. And it is, we talked about epic earlier on, and it's something not a lot of Scottish novelists do, but it's epic in its scale. I should say it takes from just after the Second World, World War. War till recently yeah. and looks in various strands and characters, Scotland's politics and culture of the time a massive undertaking. Yeah, so. 60
1: years of 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 history in, in, in a novel that's about 700 pages long. It's a big book. Yeah. I mean, and it's interesting. I mean, I, you know, uh, I, I, I will assume that you, there's a deliberate doing it in this <laughs> order because The Professor of Truth is about, is based on Lockerbie. Now, Lockerbie gets a couple of brief mentions yeah. in, in Landley still, but it's not um, something that is, that is prominent in that novel. Um, but it's one of the many aspects of that novel where I was going, there's more to be said about yeah. this particular incident or event, you know, and what, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to go back to, to look at uh, Lockerbie and the Professor of Truth. In Underlandly. still, I was concerned to look at what is it that has happened since the end of the Second World War to the present day or to about five years ago, 2008 is mm-hmm. when the novel finishes. What is it that has changed, what has stayed the same? Uh, I mean it's the same time span in a way as the testament of Gideon Mack, but yeah. here I'm trying to look at the whole society, yeah. not just one individual. Um, culturally what has changed, socially, economically, the way people go to work, you know, we don't, most of us now no longer go to work in big factories. Yeah. Um, what has happened to the role of women in society, mm-hmm. utterly transformed in the last 60 years. Um, what has happened to our politics? Um, what has happened to our housing, the way people live, and 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 uh, and all of those things? I wanted to get into the mix. What's happened to our attitudes to religion, sex, sexuality? Um, the, all of these things have changed in every society in the world, mm-hmm. but there's a particular Scottish story and dimension, and that's what I wanted to do it, deal with in the novel.
0: It contextualises all of those things and. Uh, recently, when I was watching the, the tennis, and it said seventy-seven years since Andy won, or since anyone had won, uh, since won, any British, any British made, man had won and they showed clips of what had happened, and you know, and it was like George and the throne and all these mm-hmm. things. And you're right; it's just sometimes, like saying it was twenty-five years since Lockerbie. Time kind of is a strange thing; it kind of gets away from you, and then when you say, "Well, it wasn't that." Long ago, that there were no women of the the vote, or it wasn't that long ago where you know um, homosexuality was still illegal, and all of those things. And writing a book of that scale brings it all home.
1: Well, you've encapsulated in what you've just said uh, one of my favourite quotations of all time from Walter Scott, and it happens at the very end of Waverley, Mm -hmm. the last novel, which uh, sorry, the last chapter in that novel starts off with this beautiful, beautiful image that he that he creates about drifting down a river. Um, and you don't re- and lots of things are going by quite fast on the bank as you drift down the river but it's not until you reach a bend in the river and look back that you realize how far you have come uh, from where you set yeah. off and and that's really I suppose what underlandley is still I was trying to do in, in that novel was to go how far we have come in the last 60 years not necessarily always for the good sometimes something yeah. something some, again things have changed for the better and for the worse But but how far we have come, and that's what I wanted to look at, and look about how that passage of time affected individual characters in the novel. So you know, I've got characters who are young men in the Second World War, who are old men by the time the book gets comes to an end. What has happened to them? What has happened to their attitudes to life? You know, what has happened to their wives and lovers? Um, all of those things, and then what has happened to in in the relationship between the generations as well? so it was a big undertaking um, and in, and again I, I have to say you know I, I think of people like Walter Scott, you know he wrote that on that big scale, yeah, and I wanted to try and emulate that if I possibly could Dickens and Trollope yeah. and and so on are other big heroes of mine in terms of their their ability to to do that big canvas stuff. But it was, yeah, it was it was an exhausting thing to do. I'm not <laughs> sure if I'll ever be able to write or ever attempt something yeah. on quite that scale again. Because
0: there are all these different stories going on, all these different narrations and, and, and people involved. And I think Dickens is a great example of, of, of you know, that's that what it reminded me of. And it was interesting, because it suddenly jumped out at me, that nobody had really tried that recently. You know, the, a lot of Scottish literature looks at maybe an individual's life and there's a lot of drama to be had from that, of course there is. But to do something, another writer I thought of was the Americans, like uh, Don DeLillo and people like that, to do take on that breadth of novel.
1: Well, Don DeLillo's Underworld was 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 very firmly in my kind of um, thinking when I was starting to say I thought, God, if I could produce something that has that scope mm-hmm. um, um, for, for, for for Scotland, that would be that would be the thing to aim for. Um, but you're right, I think that a lot of recent or contemporary Scottish fiction has tended to be quite focused on individuals and 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 almost on people's internal lives mm-hmm. and again yeah no harm to them no. and that's fine and that's great and it's important but I did want to try and do the big picture thing and see if it, see if I could and, and and also just see you know um what what the result was and you have to go back to the early part of the 20th century, to Lewis Classic Gibbon, perhaps, or, yeah. or, or um, James Bark, The Land of the Leal, or um, possibly some Neil Gunn mm-hmm. work, although, although even then not really, to find that kind of big scope stuff. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know whether that's what that indicates or says about about our literary culture, um, but um, it would be nice to think that, we are, We have everything here. We've got politics. We've got environment. We've got class. We've got um, everything is here in Scotland, just as any, just as it is in any other country mm-hmm. and any other culture. So we can write that yeah. big stuff if we want
0: to do it. I think you know what we spoke about right through our conversation is the legitimacy of a culture, and and and, and I think that's what st- I. I my idea is that that's what stopped people writing these big epic things because they maybe felt they didn't have the knowledge. I and mean, you know, and so it was, a, it was a fearful thing to do in case somebody pulled up not and said, well, actually, that's not the
1: case. I, I think that's a really, really interesting way of looking at it. And, you um, know, it's interesting the, the novel that people talk about so much as being, you know, a, a sort of key moment in contemporary Scottish writing is Lanark from Alistair yeah. Grey. Lanark is a big, sprawling novel. It is indeed. But, um, half of it is set in a fantasy yeah. world that's not actually set in the present. You know, I mean, it's wonderful and brilliant yes. that he does that and that in itself was daring and challenging, but you do think, yeah, maybe we, w- we had been told so often that, um, that, that, that that kind of scope is not for us that mm-hmm. we believed it. I remember reading a long, long time ago a little leaflet in, um, that I picked up in, a, in the National Library, I think it was, in, in Edinburgh, and it was a leaflet about James Kelman, who you've mentioned mm-hmm. several times in this conversation. A, a, a big influential writer on yeah, many, many other Scottish writers. Absolutely. And uh, and he was, I think at that point he'd only had one book or possibly two books okay. published. So I'm talking about the early 1980s, yes. perhaps. Yeah. And it was very a, a very short pamphlet, and what he said in it was um in, in terms of his biographical notes, it all it said was, I live in Glasgow, this is what I write. And I thought, <laughs> how brilliant! He's basically saying. There is enough for me mm-hmm. here to write about uh, as a writer, and that's what I am doing. And I thought that was a, a fantastically good way of legitimising what any writer yeah. in Scotland
0: should be able to do. I think that's at the core of not just his writing, but a lot of people, I think Evan Welsh, you mentioned, is another person who you think, there is nothing wrong with me writing in this way, and uh, and you, you know, accept it. And the thing about so much about
1: contemporary Scottish writing is that it is so diverse. You know, the yeah. voices are diverse, the styles, the, the subject matter. I mean, we're, we're, we're living in this, you know, I used to, as a bookseller mm-hmm. in the 1980s, I used to be able to just about read every new Scottish book that came out, fiction, poetry, you name it. You can't do that now. Yeah. It's just it's this overwhelming flood of, yeah. of writing and well, Scotland. Time to review stuff. Yes, you know. Know, it's,
0: yeah. great. it's a great situation to it be is.
1: in. It is, it's a wonderful, healthy situation to be in.
0: Well, can I could ask you what you're doing next before we round these things up? <laughs> Is that too soon? Uh, it's
1: a wee bit soon. I've got uh, one or two projects on the go and uh, um, I'm waiting to see what um, kind of noses ahead of, of, of the others. Um, but uh, it's a wee bit early for me to be able to say. I'm, I'm a, a bit superstitious about writing about work in progress anyway, so only to be said that yes at some point there'll be another book
0: I should also say that uh, last last year Republics of the Mind came out or was it two years?
1: Republics of the Mind um, which was a, a collection of um, short stories um, gathered over the last 20 years and yeah. it came out at the tail end of 2012
0: yeah, yeah and it's a tremendous collection and I think again it shows it's a great um, introduction, I think, to your work, if you know if people feel the need for that, because uh, it, it does, over a period of time, you can see the different subjects that, uh, that you're dealing with. Okay. Um, well, James, thanks so much for doing this. We've taken up your afternoon, but it's been a real pleasure.
1: My pleasure, too. Thanks very much. Thank
0: you. And we'll be with you soon uh, with someone else in the hot seat. Cheers. <laughs>